0: Welcome to The Colour of Our Politics, a podcast about the history of Black and Asian people in the UK and the struggle against racism. Written, created and hosted by me, Javad Alipour.
1: And me, Tanya Battelle. Each episode, we focus on a decisive chapter in British history.
0: Podcasts are uploaded bi-weekly and they're available from where all good podcasts are downloaded. You can find out more information by following us on social media or checking out our website, my website, javadalipour.co.uk.
1: We're going to start off with an extract from Priyambada's book, which is a long quote from George William Gordon, who at the time would have been called a Coloured Man, a freed slave from Morant Bay in Jamaica. A man who the establishment at the time would have believed would be helping to uphold white supremacy in Jamaica, but in fact a man whose allegiances lied with the enslaved. George William Gordon had the audacity to speak up for those who had decided that the form of freedom that they'd received at the end of chattel slavery wasn't anything like the freedom they wanted and deserved. A rebellion ensued and Gordon was falsely accused of being the ringleader. The rebellion was quashed brutally and he, along with a number of others, were executed. This is his parting letter to his wife. My beloved wife, General Nelson has been kind enough to inform me that the court-martial on Saturday last... Has ordered me to be hung, and that the sentence is to be executed in an hour hence, so that I shall be gone from this world of sin and sorrow. I regret that my worldly affairs are so deranged, but now it cannot be helped. I do not deserve this sentence, for I never advised or took part in any insurrection. All I ever did was to recommend the people who complained to seek redress in a legitimate way, and if in this I erred, or have been misrepresented, I do not think I deserve the extreme sentence. It is, however, the will of my Heavenly Father that I should thus suffer in obeying his command to relieve the poor and needy and to protect, as far as I am able, the oppressed. And glory be to his name, and I thank him that I suffer in such a cause.
0: This week, we're speaking with Priyamvada Gopal, an academic activist and author of an incredible book called Insurgent Empire that tells the history of resistance to the colonial empire and slavery uh, that Britain exported around the world. So hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again to our, uh, another episode of The Colour of Our Politics with me, Javad Alipour. And me, Tanya Vital. This week, we're chatting to Priyamvada Gopal about a whole bunch of stuff, but especially her recent-ish book, Insurgent Empire.
1: Welcome Priya. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to do the podcast. We're, we've been fangirling and fanboying out since um, you said that you'd join us. Um, we just want to ask you a little bit about the book. Like, what, was the, what were the problems that the book sought to address um, and what was your inspiration for writing it?
2: Thank you for having me. Um, The inspiration for writing the book, I think, was getting involved in discussions in the public sphere in Britain on the legacies of the empire. And I was finding that there was something very repetitive and tedious about the so-called debates. Um, They took the form of Um, let's say, a kind of mythological uh, narrative of good versus bad, um, heroic versus villainous. um, And they seem to just kind of repeatedly not go anywhere. Um, At the same time, I realized that there was a need Given the overwhelmingly one-sided understanding of the story of the British Empire um, in in Britain at large, um, that there was a need for a counter story for the story to be uh, told from the perspective, I guess, of those who were colonized, and and they're they're a various bunch. They're not, you know, they're not one uh, un, un varying mass of people. Mm-hmm. So, I spent many years trying to think about um, how one might approach this, how one might write a counter-history of empire that wasn't simplistic, that didn't just rehearse, um, you know, just invert the good versus bad binary. And my early work, uh, which was on Indian uh, radical writing, had been on dissenters, on uh, people who had challenged the... Indian state um, as it was coming into being. Uh, And these were people who were simultaneously anti-colonial, but also critical of their own people um, of of India um, as it was unfolding, as it was making itself. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself um, that if there are dissenters, and I believe that there are dissenters in all cultures across all historical periods, then how could it be Um, that there are no uh, dissenters in the 19th, 18th centuries um, on the question of empire in Britain. Mm -hmm. We are often told um, that, you know, it's anachronistic to criticize empire, it's anachronistic to criticize Winston Churchill, Mm -hmm. because back in the day, um, everybody was on board with the program. Uh, Or back in Churchill's day, everybody thought it was okay, um, you know, to to believe in white supremacy. Mm. That is simply not true. Um, I mean, I think that is one of the most false claims that circulates in Britain around the empire. Um, And I started to investigate um, whether there was dissent on the question of empire, whether everybody was on board with the project. Mm. And sure enough, it turns out that there were dissenters, uh, there were very important dissenters and there was dissent um, in, in in, in different kinds of dissent. Um, And that the empire had been criticized just as slavery had been criticized from the get-go. And that these voices have by and large been marginalized in British understanding of empire. So there was a small body of historical work on on dissenters, on imperial uh, skeptics or imperial critics, And I went off and I started reading this work and I realized, A, that there was a body of work already on British criticism of empire. Mm -hmm. But I also started to think about how this dissent came about. Why was it that people started to become uncomfortable about aspects of the empire or the the project of empire? And one of the things I started to realize as I kept reading was that... uh, This didn't just come from nowhere, that the criticism of empire was often, not always, but often inspired by the resistance of the colonized Mm -hmm. and that frequently the resistance of the colonized and the ferocity with which that resistance was sometimes put down caused crises back in Britain. So there are many periods in history where people stand up and essentially say, um, as we sometimes do in the context of anti-war movements, not in our name.
0: Yeah. And
2: there are people who are talking about colonialism, slavery, empire, all of these things and saying, not in our name. This is not what Britain should be. This is not what we understand by Britishness. mm mm-hmm. So essentially, I guess to cut a long story short, I decided to investigate the links between criticism of empire in Britain and resistance to the imperial project outside Britain. And the book is really organized uh, in terms of thinking about crises in Britain around the question of empire and the ways in which British dissenters, uh, were often inspired by resistance outside Britain, so it's a story about resistance to the empire, but looking at what is happening in Britain as well as outside Britain and the relationship between the two things.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm sort of uh, loath to to make make it, um, you know, a uh, sort of. Uh, like as if the response to reading books like that is that it's about you know um, personal experience or whatever. But I think it's it, two things struck me about really interesting about what you were saying, Varda. Well, obviously, all of it, but the, the, the big two things would be like one is like I think obviously people who who are have got migrant backgrounds from like the global south and stuff. Like it's it just emotionally matters as well, doesn't it, to realise that the the linkages that are like in your actual bones are like reflected in political history in this country. In quite an active way, and I suppose the other thing is like I, I find it really interesting what you're saying about that idea of there being quite—I mean, these aren't your words, but there being perhaps a slightly turgid discussion where, where like there was in the realms of cliche almost—and mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of that that goes on right now, doesn't isn't there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, by and large, uh, these stories have become kind of um, very sketchy, um, and there isn't actually very much deep historical understanding. It's interesting you speak about migrants um, in in Britain because the dominant story, um, and it was of course most recently um, rehearsed by the uh, Sewell report on race, is that um, migrants come to Britain and then they need to Uh, merge into Britishness and that they need to um, be positive and they need to make positive contributions and they need to appreciate um, everything that Britain has done for them. And I think to be able to make claims like that is only possible if you completely write out history. So, um, for instance, the claim that um, migrants uh, have not exerted any agency and that the descendants of the enslaved and the colonized need to stop learning to be victims and they need to become agents. The truth is, and I, I hope that that is one of the things the book does, is establish that The enslaved and the colonized and their descendants have always been agents Um, and they have not only been agents in the resistance to empire, but they have been agents in the creation of Britain. And in fact, Britain's understanding of things like human rights um, or uh, freedom or self-determination, these didn't just emerge from Britain and go off into the rest of the world and, and tell people how they should be British it's actually the other way around in 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 some ways that that people who resisted oppression people who resisted exploitation people who engaged with the empire they brought things to britain they gave things to britain even without being in britain so india africa the caribbean these are all places that have long contributed to Britain. So when 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 migrants come to Britain, um, this narrative that they should fold in, in a grateful way, um, and learn to become British, that's a flawed narrative because that actually writes out the extent to which Britain is already shaped by the world outside Britain, by, by its own colonies. Um, and therefore, the descendants of the enslaved and the colonized are already agents. They're already bringing agency to a Britain that they have long helped co- construct. So it's it's really pernicious, I think. For instance, to talk about um, migrant communities, particularly ca- communities uh, descended from uh, m- the migration from the Caribbean, as not being agents. Uh, slaves were agents, even as they were victimized. They were agents. The colonized were agents. Um, and it is very important to push against the narrative that Britain teaches people how to be agents. Um, I think one of the things I tried to show in the book is that it is quite frequently the other way around.
0: This is such an interesting point. And like, one of the things it made me think of is like, you know, like a lot of people who are sort of interested in you know, uh, kind of like cultural or artistic production. Like, I like an epic story, you know? And um, one of the things it makes me think of is all this stuff that we know now, but but people kind of like push out of their minds about how basically how in a way the empire and and kind of like racism being invented and all this kind of stuff as much as anything else erases a whole history like you know there's that you know Mm -hmm. in a very different register Mm -hmm. clearly there were people who anachronistic but nowadays there were people who we would call black people in this country with the Romans which is what 600 years before the English turn up or you know there's that because of trading between the early Saxons and and the Umayyad Dynasty in Spain. There are like, like I, I believe the, the 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 first English coin that's called Offers Offers Coin that you yeah. can see in the museums. It has the Islamic profession of faith around it. You know, there's mm-hmm. all these things. And, and, and to that end, I suppose the the what i th- i think uh, by memory is the first narrative chapter so to speak of the book you tell um a story about uh the kind of response to the uprising in india um uh against you know colonialism and so on and and one thing I found super interesting about that is a bit provocatively for like left wing people especially left wing whites is uh, you know what's super interesting about reading read, reading that is like you've got like white english people sort of learning from that or taking sides about that Mm. before you really have the emergence of what we'd call sort of the working class left or whatever don't you
2: I mean, the 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 idea uh, of people learning from resistance and people learning from insurgency uh, is doesn't come to us uh, really. It doesn't come to us at the end of the nineteenth century via Marx or or via socialism. Uh, Socialism, uh, Marxism, communism are drawing on already existing radical discourses. Uh, This isn't to say that. Each tradition isn't specific and doesn't make its own contribution, but ideas don't come out of nowhere. And I think that there is sometimes a, a tendency uh, in the European left uh, to see itself as the author of radical ideas the author um, of emancipatory notions uh, that then is disseminated to comrades in uh, in Asia Africa <laughs> and so on right and the point is that I think I don't think anyone benefits from thinking about uh, inspiration as one directional, uh, as you say, you know, as you, as you point out, there 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 is a very long history which goes back centuries of cultures engaging with each other. Sometimes cultures engage with each other without any reference to Europe. I mean, there is a long history of engagement between uh, parts of present-day South Asia or India and parts of Africa. Uh, you know, so these these connections are not new. And one thing I did want to stress, yes, in the in the book, is that there is a long lineage of. Uh, learning from resistance, there is a long lineage of ideas coming from outside the West into the West, um, and I would say this is true. This is a lesson as much uh, as important to what you just referred to as the as the white left or the European left, um, as it is to liberals who believe, for instance, that the Enlightenment came purely out. Uh, of Europe. Um, and, and this is a notion that, you know, whether you like the Enlightenment or you hate the Enlightenment, both sides rehearse this notion. Uh, but actually, it is simply inconceivable that there is such a thing called the Enlightenment that simply emerged out of Europe. Uh, there are long histories of scientific and other kinds of knowledge that come to us from the Islamic world, from Africa. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Europe has yet to acknowledge. That there is no great idea that is simply European. Um, that these are ideas that come, in a sense, uh, out of the world, and and we need to actually make those linkages visible.
0: Just one other question about the the stuff around, around that Indian uprising. One of the things that that I thought was that really sort of um, seemed almost like counter to what you'd assume is because obviously that was. Um, uh obviously that was like a violent insurrection and and what was just really interesting about reading people like Congreve and that that you were quoting in the book was like how to to be honest they didn't seem to even back in that period you had like you know white English people who were not flinching from I, I don't mean this as a general celebration of macho violence or anything like that but you know you have people not flinching from Supporting—I don't know what you'd call it—unanachronistically, but like supporting, like a violent uprising of colonized people, like that. Just that, to be honest, that took me by surprise a little bit.
2: I think what's interesting there uh, is that it isn't so much a justification or an advocacy of violence as it is an understanding of why violence takes place. Um, I think that sometimes, uh, you know, uh, we tend to forget that violence can emerge when it is it's, it's seen as the only option or it is seen as the most um, effective option. What is important about um, the response to the Indian insurrection uh, is that the official narrative, the dominant narrative was, oh, this was terrible violence and look at the number of women and children who were killed. And there is no doubt it was horrific violence. Uh, And of course, so was the counter-violence by the colonial state that was even more horrific. So there was a great deal of bloodshed on both sides. Now, people like Richard Congreve or Ernest Jones, who are engaging with this violence, I don't think they are so much saying, you know, yay violence, but saying, look at the situation in which we have put these people and let us learn from what they call, you know, the kind of sanguinary lessons. Let us read bloodshed and see what it is telling us. And that is a very different thing from justifying violence. It is saying, there is bloodshed. It is horrific. It has had tremendous consequences both for the colonized and for the colonial presence uh, in, in India. What do we learn from this? And there is a real call to say, you know lessons must be learned. Um, And that lesson is, in the case of the people I talk about, is essentially saying, well, you know, maybe colonialism and what it's doing is not such a great thing. And maybe, you know, and in in Richard Congreve's case, he says, perhaps the only answer is full withdrawal. If you don't withdraw, you are inviting violence. And this is something that comes up quite frequently that people saying, you know, even though Britain likes to talk about itself um, as a benevolent force out in the world, um, it becomes clear that Britain often only responds when there is violence um, and when that violence then subsequently causes a crisis back home. And this is something that is unfortunately true in many cases from India in 1857 to Mau Mau in the 1950s. You know, in that hundred year span, there, is a, there are a number of occasions when only violence causes some kind of crisis around the
1: question of empire um for me ernest jones was kind of one of the standout characters um so one of the things that um we read in your book that he did he he would like carry i guess you would call it a portfolio of um witness accounts and and clippings and news articles and and then he would reproduce those and and share them with the community right yeah, he would. So he would, um, he would, get, well, he would print them in his paper.
2: So he ran essentially a kind of counter cultural paper, the People's Paper. Um, and what he was doing is important because by now, by the time he starts to edit the People's Paper when he comes out of jail uh, in the 1850s, 1860s, uh, is he is at the in a sense, the waning end of Chartism as a movement. Chartism's energies, its popular democratic energies have been co-opted um, and it's, it has become, it is increasingly defanged. And he wants to inspire uh, Chartists and working people to start resisting once again. And what he does is to say that, you know, we need to actually look at India, and we need to look at the Indians, we need to look at the sepoys, we need to see what they are doing. And we need to understand that the people that they are fighting in India are the British elites, the wealthy and the powerful who are lining their pockets from colonialism. You, the ordinary British working person, is actually not benefiting from the empire, and you actually share an enemy. Uh, with the sepoys and the others who have risen up in 1857, and he tries to make common cause between ordinary British people, uh, you know, who would have been deemed to be white um, at that point, and Indians in resisting what he would call the, the real enemy, and the real enemy is the wealthy and the powerful and the exploitative, um, who who are. Uh, you know, in a sense, conducting a dual uh, exploitation in Britain and and in the colonies, and he tries very hard to make the Indian inspiration, uh, what he calls the revolt of Hindustan, um, into a point of inspiration for a movement that is waning uh, in Britain, and of course doesn't succeed, but but ends up saying some very very interesting uh, things
1: in in the process. Um so just to give you a bit of background about uh, my heritage my um, my dad's Caribbean my mum's English and my dad's Caribbean my dad's from Dominica so the story of um the Jamaican affair or the Morant Bay um incident in 1865 really kind of um rung home for me um the Dominican um islands are quite renowned for their uh, maroon wars they they had their first maroon war in 1785 yeah. um and that was led by a Maroon chief named Bala. So the story of uh, Mr. George William Gordon in um, Morant Bay was really kind of like, I I don't know, it kind of like made my heart a little bit on fire. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the Maroon Wars because I had actually wanted to start this book in the era, in the last decades of slavery. Um, And in fact, there is a, a chapter that I withdrew that is sitting on my computer right now that is about... Um, a a rebellion in Demerara, present-day Guyana uh, in 1823. And in a way, I would like the narrative of this book to be scoped back into the 18th century um, and to be thought about in the context of the Maroon Wars and in the context of Multitudinous slave uprisings. I mean, this is something that in Britain is again completely written out of the story, right? So abolition is purely about white elite male benevolence. So it's Wilberforce, Clarkson, Clarkson, Wilberforce. They have their role to play. There is no need to diminish um, their role. But actually, as Frederick Douglass says, and I begin with this quotation, to the extent that they could, slaves rebelled, and they rebelled relentlessly and continuously. Um, And so did, of course, uh, former slaves, uh, and and the Haitian Revolution is extremely important uh, in this regard. So yes, I mean, the Morant Bay story is picking up on the years immediately, uh, the decades immediately following uh, emancipation, and it's saying that Those who were descended from slaves were also rebels, uh, also rebels, and they also rebelled. And important here is this that they did not accept the version of emancipation that was handed down to them as the real deal. They contested what freedom meant. So, you have the slave rebellions and the role that they play, uh, which is not sufficiently studied in in abolition. In eventually, it is pretty expensive to keep down, uh, you know, plantation rebellions. Mm-hmm. So the question then is. Um, why then are those who are emancipated why are they rebelling I mean after all 18 you know 1838 full emancipation everybody is free now and the important thing here is that they contest the meaning of freedom that they're saying what you have given us which is the freedom to continue to work for you in the plantations for a measly wage this is not our definition of freedom we don't want to be incorporated into capitalism and move in a sense from chattel slavery to wage slavery. Wage slavery doesn't feel sufficiently free to us. We want the right to have little plots of land and live dignified, self-sustaining lives. I read this as a direct challenge to mercantile capitalism, to plantation economies, but also to the wider economy of producing sugar and, and other plantation goods. From cheap labor, and the Morant Bay Rebellion is, of course, one of the figureheads. Is George William Gordon, as you said, he's mixed race, but he decides that his his lot, his identification, is ultimately with the descendants of uh, the enslaved and with people who identify or who are identified as black, mm-hmm. um, and he becomes a very important figure around which there is criticism, very fierce criticism of the uh, uh, of of the ruling elites in Jamaica uh, in the 1860s. So uh, he's a, he's an example, I think, of the ways in which, um, again, rebellion in the colonies is funneled back to Britain, mm. and and there is a developing understanding in Britain of a kind of emergent solidarity across racial boundaries because Gordon was what they call a colored man uh, in, in those. So he wasn't, uh, he wasn't black, but he wasn't, didn't quite belong to the white ruling classes mm-hmm. either. And that kind of borderland figure becomes very important for thinking about solidarity across racial lines.
1: Um, a quote from the book, which I, I found quite funny, um, you said, Labour leaders and trade unionists called for common calls to be made, not least because the Tories could do to the English working classes that they had done to Jamaicans. I, that that really um, struck out for me. Um, we'll come back to that a, a little bit later. I think um, another thing, though, that struck struck me was uh, Gordon said that um, the people would be quite right to break it, break out into open rebellion if an illegal if an illegality is permitted in in the govern in the governor and e- an illegality may be permitted on the part of the people. Something Trevor Noah said in regard to um, the Black Lives Matter. Um, uprising last summer um he was you know saying that the, you know once the the societal contract is broken you can't then start imposing kind of these societal contracts on property and stuff um i, I just saw there was a, a link mm, there between yes, what's happening yes, now yes. and what's happening back then
2: yes I, the, the this is a link that is um in a sense it is the condition in which we find ourselves that is the state uh You know, in a sense, uh, and this is very visible in relation to the American state and policing, right? Which is that the state lays exclusive claim to both violence and law. And it, uh, in a sense, arrogates the right to inflict violence to itself and demands nonviolence in return. Yes. And then it also says, we will, you know, treat the law flexibly. But you need to be law-abiding. So every time there is, for instance, a a, a police killing, as has just happened, sadly, um, those who represent the state, in this case, Joe Biden, will call for peace and calm. And I think that what Gordon was saying is that what are the grounds on which you can call for peace and calm? You can call for peace and calm if everybody's maintaining peace and calm. But if the state is breaking the law, if the state is inflicting violence, if the state is arrogating to itself the right to shed blood, then you are no longer in a moral position to demand nonviolence and calm. Mm
0: -hmm. I, I suppose there's like an international version of this where sometimes you see modern do you know what I mean like uh, a new I don't know maybe a new articulation of some older ideas like obviously it makes me think a little bit of um, the Syrian revolution and and the kind of um, you know uh, a sort of international liberal left opinion which Mm -hmm. as as soon as uh, obviously everyone was inspired for obvious reasons by a actively non-sectarian peaceful movement at the beginning but sort of as soon as all hell is unleashed on those protesters, you know, by by various regional powers, by the Russians, by their own regime, and so on and so on. Like uh, a real struggle for people to then engage with, like people actually fighting to defend themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think you, what's what you know, the obvious point is that l- we ended up with like actually people who are supposed to be liberal left side of things then repeating incredibly like kind of old-fashioned orientalist uh, war on terror even ideas about well you can't be on the side of these people because they're all you know beardy weirdy um, head-chopping lunatics or whatever
2: one thing the book doesn't really have time to delve into but something i've been thinking about in uh, relation to questions of decolonization and so on is that solidarity is messy um, and it's not simple, you know. The people you show solidarity with are not necessarily angelic, um, and they're not necessarily. Of course, they're never homogeneous. Uh, you know, like when, when, for instance, in 1857, uh, you are showing solidarity with the Indians who have risen up. Actually that mass is a is a very conflicted mass uh you know you've got everything from feudal princes to starving peasants you've got everything from soldiers to queens um and muslims hindus brahmins dalits uh, you know, uh, Adivasis or indigenous peoples—they're a mixed bunch as well. So the idea that solidarity is somehow kind of easy to identify, and then you know, either there are people who you would show solidarity with, or they mess up. And this again comes up in relation to Mao Mao as well, right? Because there is horrific violence, uh, in uh, not just, of course, the colonial state inflicts horrible horrible violence, but there's also uh, some pretty, pretty uh, kind of blood curdling stuff coming out of the resistance. And, and there are disagreements within the resistance, and there are all kinds of parties pushing and pulling for power. Solidarity is a messy game. And I think that one instinctual response on the left is to go into cartoon mode. And to assume that anti colonialism is is a very simple thing where you can identify the colonizer and you can identify the colonized and you know whose site to be on in in some simple fashion it 's not simple it is very messy um, and I think that that 's something when we as we all, you know go into thinking about decolonization, we need to be thinking about more. The other thing we need to think about more and this this again the book only touches on, and i I, I would have liked to think about it more. Colonization was never also, you know, bad colonizers and noble colonized. As the French philosopher and writer Aimé Césaire points out, colonialism actually got on extremely well with uh, tyrants in the regions where it colonized. Mm And that's something that we have not taken on board sufficiently because we have a, tend to have a kind of a homogeneous understanding of the colonized. Actually, British colonialism relied on and continues to rely on in, in many ways in its foreign policy on authoritarian figures in different parts of the world um, and, uh, and authoritarian regimes. So again I think we have to be careful when we start thinking about solidarity to not just make it simply along the lines of nation we need to think about uh despots and authoritarians and tyrants and some pretty pretty unsavory characters Within nations, within formerly colonized nations. Um, and I think, in a way, that's the next stage of the story from where the book left off. Um, is yes, we you know this is anti-colonialism, this is the story of anti-colonialism. What should we think about when we're thinking about the story of decolonization? And, and I guess that's a that's a separate book in one sense.
0: I suppose that, that that's also um, uh, an almost too neat segue into <laughs> yeah. in, in, into an, into another question we wanted to, to 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 ask. Like, obviously, there's there's that sense of the word decolonization meaning a series of I don't know how to describe it, but something like uh, a series of historical political events. Probably the key part of which is after the Second World War. Blah 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 blah. But I mean, one one thing um, that really I uh, really struck me about reading the the, the first part of your book. Was um, So, you know, uh, obviously Tanya and I, we're artists. Do you know what I mean? Um, you, obviously, you work in university. Um, uh, you know, that's the sort of bit of the world we live in. And um, there's a whole bunch of, like, chat about um, the idea of, like, decolonizing these institutions, we, um, which is one of those things where we were speaking before about the idea that perhaps because our side don't feel like they're winning, because our side we feel under pressure, we end up perhaps not not always in, interrogating ideas. I was giving an example of this to someone the other day, saying, like, it feels a little bit like um, with the chat around the institutional racism, the soil report and stuff and and what have you, you know, one of the slogans that's come out is people have been saying, um, you know, Britain is not innocent and things like this. And I, I, I worry sometimes that, like, the dip, on a point of principle then, because we've been inspired by Black Lives Matter and what have you, on a point of principle we have to defend the argument that this country is exactly the same as the US, rather than there just is racism here And in a similar way, you know, there's a lot of calls in theatre and so on, like we need to decolonise this institution and and it becomes almost like a a point of principle, rather than a question of what is this idea of decolon- yeah. decoloniality where does it come from, you know specific people have forged that and, and you write incredibly eloquently about it in that book, and I, I was wondering if you'd wouldn't mind just laying out a little bit of that argument, where it comes from, what you think the problems with that idea are and so on.
2: Well, I mean, you're asking, in a sense, a million dollar question. This is work I have just commenced. Um, I am trying to think about what decolonization means. I, I, I often get asked to, to you know, pitch up and, and give workshops on decolonization and the first thing I say is that actually decolonization is not an answer, it's a question. And it is a question that we pose in different contexts about our relationship to colonialism. And that is, and I say different contexts, as you just pointed out, that question is necessarily different in Britain than it is in America, mm-hmm. okay? Because Britain has a particular story around the empire and America has a different story. I think one of the reasons people probably over- do the parallels between the U.S. and Britain is because of the reverse crudity, whereby a lot of Brits assume that racism only happens in America, right? So mm-hmm. there's that kind yeah. of oh well we're great, how terrible the Americans are, yeah. um, you know. So so I think there's a kind of flipping back and forth between you know two kind of slightly cartoonish ideas, but I think the minute we start thinking about decolonization as a question, we must pose. And a question that is deeply shaped by where we are at a particular moment, and therefore, the question for the art world um, or for artists or for creative writers is is, is different than it is for an academic. Uh, the, the, the university is a, a particular kind of institution with a particular economy, and therefore, the questions we pose about decolonization within a university are different from uh, you know, thinking about decolonization and the monarchy or decolonization and banks. Uh, they're different questions. So I would say that let's first pose the question before rushing to provide bullet point answers. Decolonization comes from different contexts as well. So there are versions of decolonization that come from indigenous resistance movements in uh, Australia, in North America, indeed in South Asia, and they pose a particular set of questions, for instance, around access to resources, around land, around um, uh, climate, Uh, around our relationship to the non-human world, that is a specific kind of strand of decolonization. If you think about decolonization in relation to the Caribbean and parts of Africa, we are thinking uh, on the one hand about questions of race, and we're also thinking about questions of capitalism. So we are thinking about racial capitalism and how to undo racial capitalism. We're also thinking about the collaboration between native elites and um, uh, uh, colonizers. If you move to India, uh, South Asia more broadly, there is a different set of questions. Yes, there is the question of sovereignty and self determination uh, for nation states, but then there are also questions of colonization and uh, annexation by nation states. There is the whole question of caste um, and the ways in which caste uh, is. Uh, goes back many, many centuries, and it's and is its own form of oppression that then plugs into the racial categories brought in by British colonialism. I mean, I'm giving kind of broad examples to say that there isn't a single question of decolonization. Decolonization has multiple histories mm. and different theorists. So the questions posed by Nkrumah, for instance, uh, and and others in uh, nationalist and anti-colonial movements in Africa are different from the questions posed by Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois in uh, uh, the United States. Um, It has multiple trajectories and we need to recognize that it has multiple trajectories and poses different kinds of questions very broadly around race, self-determination, access to resources and equality, uh, but that they they take specific uh, forms depending on context.
1: Um, and lastly, I guess we've talked a little bit about allyship, but just to bring it back to that a little bit and, and just kind of, um, maybe po- pose some more questions about allyship. Um, obviously we spoke to you, um, a, a week or so ago and, and you were dealing with things in the press. Um, we spoke to Shardine. She often deals with uh, Shardine Taylor-Stone. Mm-hmm. She often deals with a lot of, um, attacks for her, uh, points of view and her, um, I guess educational value on Twitter, really. Um, and and I, I asked Javad like last week, what can we do to to help you or to help Chardine or to help other people who are dealing with these attacks, but maybe don't necessarily feel like me. I'm not very articulate. Like, how? What kind of allyship can we provide?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, allyship is a slightly, uh, I guess, thin term um, in in some ways because it assumes that there is a a set of fights happening and then there are bystanders who become a little bit more supportive. Mm. Um, and, And one of the terms that gets used quite a lot and has actually become institutionalized in very telling ways. Is how to be a white ally, mm-hmm. um, and so the, you know, ally is often used alongside white, and, and the notion of the white ally. Um, you know, we we actually have university workshops called "How to Be a White Ally," and it seems to me again there is that slight danger that it becomes a bit of a cartoon, right? You you do X, Y, and Z, and then you become mm-hmm. a particular kind of ally. I think. Again, I would go back, and, I, I'm, and and maybe this is not a very satisfactory answer to the fact that solidarity is difficult um, and that uh, it, it it is not easy. It is not easy. I can't answer the question in any simple way of what can, you know, you do when the mm-hmm. Daily Mail comes for, you know, Shadeen or, or for me or for, you know, for m- many others. I mean, what can we do when the Daily Mail comes for, you know, Megan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who is a princess? Um I think the important thing is to say, to ask ourselves, how do we become dissenters and how do we swell the ranks of dissenters? Because, you know, we often hear the slogan, we are many, they are few, but it doesn't feel that way. It actually feels like, you know, they are many and we are a small beleaguered band of people trying not to be pushed you know, hard against the wall. Mm-hmm. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we become more vocal? How do we become more seen and how do we form difficult demanding coalitions so that we are no longer in a, in a situation where you have a heavy handed establishment with very clear vested interests, racial as well as economic. And then you have a diverse bunch of uh, people who are pushed to the wall. I think we have to really, again, pose this question of how do we make serious linkages and how do we make what often feels like small bands of radical, uh, you know, countercultural pockets. How do we make this more and more mainstream? I think I think there is no way outside actually speaking up as much as possible and turning up as much as possible and having difficult conversations in the way that we are having a conversation now yeah. which is to say let's let's see how far we can change uh the discourse so that we are you know people who are talking and thinking in these ways don't feel like beleaguered outsiders
0: mm-hmm. thank you yeah so such an interesting take and that that critique of um like allyship is is I think um, a really important one. It did, it did make me think that when you say "no, uh, we are many, they are few, it does feel a bit more like we may well be very many, but they keep fucking winning all the elections. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, <laughs> exactly,
2: yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and even when they don't win the elections, they call the shot. Yeah
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it, I mean, I don't know, yeah, I, I suppose that's, um, it's, for me, it's one of the things that's really important about trying to engage with the history of these things and also trying to engage with the world as it is now, I think... Perhaps we don't do ourselves any favors uh, by sometimes having a politics which feels like supporting supporting a football team and supporting Mm. the right colours and stuff like that. One of the chats we were having with Chardine was about how you know doing a look like looking at she's she's involved with the Labour Party and all that that kind of stuff. And then we were talking about how like in the in the American election, you know, when you look at like uh, what's she got to say, you know, Stacey Abrams and people like this in Georgia, you know, you do seem to see like a Uh, what do you call it, like a constituency for like a more progressive way of doing things, which is like, you know, uh, you could say working class African-Americans and Latinos or people from the city who are African-Americans, Latinos, and then like more educated middle, like lower middle class, middle class whites in the suburbs, in the more diverse suburbs. And like, I don't know, I think for some people on the left, even, even pointing out that like that is who... Agrees with you more than you know older mechanics in Scunthorpe. That feels like, do you know what I mean? That's treasonous yeah. somehow. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that goes back in a sense uh, to you know, cartoon politics on the one hand, and and understanding that solidarity isn't neat. Uh, that sometimes uh, you may have to make alliances and and support people who aren't. 100% ideological you know blood brothers uh, and and we are in a situation where it, particularly within an electoral system where the options are you know not wide ranging and we can't look at the electoral system as the only means uh, of of changing things politically but it it exists and within that system you do have to make wise choices that are about allyship and that don't rely on on kind of reverse Crudities. I mean, there is a real problem when we have uh, men on the left, and they are largely men, um, saying that actually, you know, Trump represents the working classes better than, um, a, you know, a, a progressive black woman who might not be your ideological soul sister, but who has certain progressive values. Um, and I think I think we really do need to be wary of uh, cartoon politics, no matter which side of the, uh, or no matter which end of the political uh, spectrum we, we come from. Um, and, and that's again, difficult and demanding. Sometimes you might have to vote for someone who isn't at all your ideological soulmate, but who is better than essentially someone who represents the Ku Klux Klan. And mm-hmm. it, it's not satisfying, but there we are.
0: Yeah, for I mean, sure, man. Does that
1: mean I have to vote for Kia? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, mate, you're from, you're from Bradford, like you'll do what we always do. You'll you'll. Do you know what I mean? You'll keep your views to yourself. You'll turn up when you vote Labour. Um, I, yeah, I did, I just one, one final little thing about that always makes me chuckle. Was like, but he, I did, me, can I just please, can I just please, jump in, Javad? please.
2: I believe in critical solidarity, which is to say. Just because my solidarity is, in a sense, you know, sometimes spoken for just because of how narrow the spectrum is, doesn't mean I'll keep my mouth shut, right? Mm. So I might be forced in one or other context to vote labor. Uh, and God knows, I have tremendous disagreements and and even revulsion sometimes at some of the people who uh, you know who populate the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. But but that is a critical solidarity. It's not saying because I voted for you, I'm you know cool. Yeah. Just carry on, mate. You know that that's yeah. not what I mean. I mean that when I make a certain electoral choice, that is combined by my also saying I reserve the right to criticise you loudly and fiercely, and I will hold the two things together.
1: Yeah, that's a great point.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I suppose it—it's it, a nice—it um, it goes goes right back to that question of people having solidarity with messy anti-colonial uprisings during the day and stuff. I will I would like to share one, one little silly quite I think quite entertaining example of that thing you were saying about you know the the black woman might have further away politics from you but she doesn't represent the KKK. Mm-hmm. I remember the, the last French election when Le Pen was doing well and it, it was obviously Le Pen Macron and there was a certain genre of like edgy white French left-wing guy who had a slogan that was something like I will, I will not be forced to choose Tony Blair over Adolf Hitler, and I'm like, mate, <laughs> choose fucking Tony Blair, you idiot. <laughs> I, mean,
2: I mean, yeah. Look, this is it. It's depressing that that's the spectrum, but here we are.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know what? Could I ask you one more question? That's a bit yeah, of a segue. Yeah. Either it goes yeah. somewhere, or it, or it doesn't. One of the things that we've been thinking about a lot in this podcast is the idea that sometimes by mistake, in some way, or or just by thoughtlessness. We end up, like, ironically, us as people of colour, as anti-racists, we end up erasing our own history of, like, black, Asian, however you want to describe it radicalism so um you know we've we one of the things we, we uh, you know for instance um uh whatever the ins and outs of people using that using the notion of political blackness in their 70s and 80s um whether one supports this or one doesn't or whatever that's supposed to mean about supporting something in the 70s the fact of the matter is people did use it and they did some stuff that changed this country and the world um and sometimes sometimes uh kind of we end up in certain sections of our movement end up erasing that actual history itself and and it's something that i've come across a little bit with like uh, an energy from some younger people young academics young artists where there's almost a feeling with this with this chat about sort of like the need to decolonize things there's this argument that and it is a slightly cartoonish argument but there's this argument that like oh nothing's substantially changed and i think there's something really pernicious about that in the sense that it specifically erases the folk who came before us who did in fact change things. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think we, again, have to be, much of what I'm saying is about holding two thoughts together in your head at the same time. I think it should be perfectly possible to say that power is tenacious um, and that systems like white supremacy uh, are tenacious, but they are not eternal. And I think that we must Absolutely, be clear about the progress that has been made. It's it's very little, and it, it it hasn't applied across the board. But the fact is that even in the twenty odd years that say I have taught at a at a, a university, I have seen things change. I have seen the racial discourse change. I have seen the profile of uh you know the student body change. This may seem very minimal, but you know as Douglas says, power concedes nothing without a struggle. And the only way in which you can hold power to account and push it is by struggling. Mm. So I think it should be possible to say, yes, power is tenacious, but it's not unchanging. And yes, struggle does yield something. That doesn't mean the struggle is over. I mean, the Sewell report wants to say, It was, you know, there was a problem at some point, but now it's really quite minimal. That is not the case. But it is equally not the case that nothing has changed. I think we again have to hold both these things together. Now, in terms of political blackness, um, I think there has been a tendency, and it's partly come, partly. From liberal multiculturalism to say actually we are um, you know we are um, either um, Arab Muslim or we are South Asian Hindus or we are Caribbean blacks or we are Nigerian uh, 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 African black people. It is important not to homogenize, but it is also important to understand that you can hold particularities in tension with a generality. Nobody likes the term BAME, and again, the Sewell report says, let's get rid of it. My view is that, yeah, it's not a great term, but sometimes it signifies people who are in a marginalized or hierarchized position vis-a-vis race. It's not permanent. It's a marker. Um, and yes, there might be a point at which you want to be more specific, and we must be more specific. The the, the you know the the situation of of Asian Indians uh, is not the same as the situation of Bangladeshis or Caribbean Black people in Britain. So particularity, specificity is important, but we can hold the specific and the general in the same thought. We can hold the particular and the universal in the same thought. And I would say that that particular demanding, holding together, that particular difficulty is really what we need if we are not to kind of descend into endless cartoonishness.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, as, to it's a phrase, <laughs> Professor, you're very much preaching to the choir on that yes. one. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I sometimes think that the chat about BAME, like, I, I just think... It's weird, I see people like celebrating the fact that we that we don't have an analytical category or whatever or a, or a slogan to describe the things that we have in common, do you that's know what I mean? And I right, just find that right. peculiar, to be honest. So that's been The Colour of Our Politics with me, Javad Alipour.
1: And me, Tanya Vital.
0: If you've enjoyed it, please like the podcast, subscribe to it to get other bi-weekly episodes on whatever form it is that you download your podcast, share it, review it, and just, you know, join in the conversation on social media.